joining us this morning in worship. I do have a few announcements that I'd like to share uh, this morning. Uh, first and foremost, if you are relatively new to Victory Life Church and you'd like to learn more about who we are, we'd like to invite you to our next installment of Growth Track. Growth Track is a four-week class where you learn all about what we believe and how you can get plugged in, how you can get connected, and how you can get on a pathway to grow in your faith. This is not a commitment that you're making to Victory Life Church. You're not obligated to become a member. This is just a way for you to get to know more about who we are and to really ascertain from that as to whether or not you want to hang out with us for, for a long while. And we'd love to have you in our next session. It starts in two weeks from today on Sunday, February 26th at 9.30 a.m. in room 307 to sign up for that class. You can sign up online at vlchurch.com. Click on the banner that you see on the screen there, or you can just take one of those communication cards that I mentioned just a moment ago and just say, hey, I want to join Growth Track and drop it off at the Welcome Center afterwards. We'd love to have you. One more reminder that I want to make mention of is that we're going to be having our annual uh, church-wide meeting on Monday, February 20th uh, here in the North Sanctuary. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about uh, how we use the resources that God gives us, uh, you can come and attend our annual meeting. You'll learn all, to, all about how we use those resources to advance the mission of, of God here at Victory Life Church. And also, we will elect new board members who make decisions about how we use resources here at Victory Life Church on that Monday. So if you're a member of Victory Life Church, you can come to that meeting and you can cast your vote for uh, new leaders of our board of trustees who help to lead our finances and oversee our physical plant here at Victory Life Church. So we'd love to have you come Monday, February 20th on 7 p.m. to our annual church-wide meeting. Well, that's all I have this morning in the way of announcements. If you've come this morning to worship the Lord Jesus with your tithes and offerings, you likely know what to do and how to do it. You can give online, you can give via text, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord with your tithes and offerings today. Can I ask you to stand this morning? And as you do, let's bow for a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a privilege to gather as believers in this place this morning. We gather here to draw near to you because of the promise that is found in your word. In James, it says, when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. That is why we are here. We ask that you would come close as we worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's put our hands together. I hope you've come to worship today. We've got a God who's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. Come on. We bring him a sacrifice today. joy let us praise and shout out loud to the lifter of our hands to the rock we're standing on your salvation is our song now we can't stay silent we
tonight, have you come to worship him? We're going to declare it together. Lord, we come to worship you. We bow our hearts. Lord, we come to worship you. Lord, we bow our hearts in awe. By your love, we are redeemed. We are yours and your hearts true. We are yours and your are God. We sing it out. We are yours and your are God. Yeah. Great is your love for us and great are the things you've done. And praise is the offering we bring to you. Sing all of our heart and soul and all that you are. This morning, it's good to be in his house, and it's good to bring a sacrifice because worship is sacrificial. And this morning, this next song we sing is going to be retelling and remembering. Worship is also retelling the gospel and remembering what God has done. And through that worship, we can see warfare. We can see God go before us. We can see teaching. We can see people learning God's word. We can see healing in Jesus' name. Worship brings things from heaven, from the spiritual realm, into the natural realm. And this morning as we sing this next song, we're going to do just that as we sing, I believe. Let's sing that together. One, two, three. Let's talk about what we believe this morning. Let's declare it to the Lord. I believe that the blood of Jesus still washes white as snow. I believe that the power of the gospel still makes the broken whole. I believe that the curse of sin was broken when they rolled away that stone. I believe, I believe, I believe. And as I bow before you, Lord, I will rise in confidence. I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. And no matter where I go, no matter where I've been, I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. I believe that the wall Sing it to the daughters. Oh, we sing it to the sons. 
families on this nation, Father God, as we sing about your goodness, Lord. That's what it's all about, is shining our light. We're going to sing his goodness. We're going to tell the daughters. We're going to tell the sons. We're going to tell the darkness that the light has come in Jesus' name. All those things we said, I believe walls are going to fall when we fall down on our knees. Believe that the lame are going to go walking. There's healings to be had. And the blind are going to see. But more importantly, I believe that the blood of Jesus still washes white as snow. Wow. What a good gospel. What a good word. The blood of Jesus still washes you and me. And it can wash others when we shine our light. We've talked about some things that worship is about this morning. Remembering, retelling, healing, teaching. It's evangelistic. But when we worship, we also align ourselves with what's happening in the heavenly realms. Worship is happening right now. And when we worship, we're just aligning ourselves with what's already going on in heaven. And in this next song, you're going to hear some of the most beautiful text that you've ever heard in a song. And you're going to think, wow, what a poet to write those things down. I don't know where that comes from, but what a poet. Those are great words. I'll tell you where they came from. God himself inspired John, the apostle, to write the text of everything that we're going to sing in this next song. And everything that we're going to sing in this next song is what's taking place in heaven. So this morning I encourage you, allow your worship, allow your praise to be aligned with what's happening in heaven right now. Because then the Spirit will inhabit this place. You'll feel His presence and you'll feel His move in and amongst this room. Let's worship Him.
morning just to thank his holiness, his worthiness. Lord, we pause just to dwell in your presence, to be filled with your presence, for you are holy. And Lord, even though we're not worthy to stand before you, Lord, through the blood of Jesus, we can. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, your holiness, your worthiness. You are worthy of our praise this morning. Lord, let the cares of this life, Lord, just fade away, Lord, as we spend time with you. We know you are bigger, you are greater, and ultimately, Lord, eternity is our view. Just in the solemnity of this moment, let's just sing that chorus one more time from our hearts. Holy, holy. Lord, we do make it our prayer today that our worship would align with heaven. Heroes of the faith like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, they've sung louder and bowed lower than any of us this morning, Lord. 
because they are in awe of the presence of God. Oh Lord, may we always join them. May we always be humble and in wonder that the Lord of the universe desires to be with us as the Apostle Paul wrote that whether we are living or asleep, Jesus created us to be with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We pray that it will continue to make and mold us in this place and to the people you've designed us to be. We ask these things humbly in your precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. All right, young disciples, at this time, you may be dismissed to head down the hall. We are going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. I believe you will be as well, so that's a cue for you older disciples. We're going to be in Acts 16. You may just want to put a finger or a note or a bookmark in your Bible in Philippians chapter 4 as well as you're turning to Acts chapter 16. That may help you a little bit later on in the service because... We're going to be in the book of Acts 16, but also talking about the founding of the Philippian church this morning. Perhaps you've heard a verse to the effect of, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Perhaps you've heard the voice rejo- verse, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Perhaps you've heard the verse which says, that be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You ever heard that one? How about I can do all things through him who gives me strength? Have you heard that one? Was that on the wall somewhere uh, at one of your youth camps? Perhaps you've heard that one, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. These are quotable verses from the book of Philippians, one of the most powerful books in all the world. What a wonderful payoff that someone went and evangelized the Philippians. Well, that someone was the Apostle Paul and his ministry associates, Silas and Timothy, and we're going to find out today, Luke. They went to Philippi to start a church in a place where there was no church, In fact, they went to Philippi following the inconvenient voice of the Lord to start a church where there weren't really even any Jewish people to get started with. Truly, the Philippian church was started primarily because of the inconvenient voice of God and the obedience of Paul and his ministry associates. Oftentimes, the voice of the Lord is inconvenient. Now, I understand being an inconvenient voice because I'm a very inconvenient voice at home. I like to break up what my kids are doing in this wild assumption that they should help maintain our home. And therefore, I'll say things like, kiddos, kiddos, it's time for us to do our chores. And you'll hear something like, oh, but my Lego tower was nearing completion. I have five minutes left in my show. I was just about to go and see if somebody wanted to play. But... I assume someone should help me with the dishes or vacuuming or or dusting or doing some of the chores that need done in the house. So I am the inconvenient voice in my home. I have one child who is famous for the moment I say, hey, I need you to come in and help. His word to me is, just a minute. I think, what do you mean, just a minute? What are you doing that's so important that you give me just a minute? Now, I know what just a minute means, and so do you. Just a minute means, Dad, I'm acknowledging your voice, but I'm ultimately ignoring your instruction. Because my great hope is that you'll forget what you just told me before I said just a minute. And therefore, you won't come back to find me, and therefore, I will not have to do what you asked me to do. I figured it out. Just a minute is now my least favorite phrase in humanity. Because I know that my inconvenient voice is being acknowledged or ignored. Well, I thank God this morning, and I really do thank God, 
that Paul and his ministry associates didn't give God just a minute when he began to unfold the plan to get to Philippi. And I really believe that many of us are in the pattern of giving God the just a minute treatment. We acknowledge his voice and then ignore his instruction. But I believe with all my heart that if we are to reach lost and dying people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be more in the business of saying, yes, Lord, I will, and I will right now. One point to today's sermon, I'm going to give it to you right now before we hop in. Obey the inconvenient voice of God. He knows better than you. It's good for everybody when the people of God listen to the voice of God. And I'm going to prove it to you today through the scriptures. For the sake of context, we are near the beginning of the second missionary journey. Paul and Silas have gone back through the land route to the churches that Paul and Barnabas had hit in the first missionary journey. Once they have strengthened those churches, they're going to want to move forward and begin to found churches in new areas of the ancient world. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and following. You're going to know none of these places. Don't worry, I've got a map for you today because I love you. And we're going to go back and try to make sense of this all. So don't be worried if you don't know any of these places, okay? Here we go. Paul and Silas and Timothy went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite Mesia, they attempted to go down to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he'd seen the vision... We went immediately and tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there might be a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Thus the humble beginning of the church in Philippi. Now I cannot stress to you how inconvenient the voice of the Lord was. You heard all of those things about Bithynia and and Asia, and Phrygia, and Galatia, and and Troas, and Neapolis, and Philip. I can't even begin to describe to you, well, I'm going to try, how inconvenient the voice of the Lord was. Because the plan that Paul had was messed up not once but twice, and the plan that Paul had also had Paul and his associates traveling further and doing more than they had ever expected. So I'm going to ask our team to shoot the map up on the screen for us today to sort of give us a sense of what took place for Paul and his associates. If you see to the north in Syria, the church of Antioch, where so many of these missionary journeys begin, you'll see it there in the yellow. Paul and Barnabas, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey travel that purple line to Tarsus, that was Saul's home city, Paul's home city, to Derby, to Lystra, to Iconium, and then they end up in Antioch and Pisidia, just in the dead center of that map. So their idea was that they were going to go southwest into these seven great cities of Asia. That was their goal, because these were massive cities. They would have had incredible, incredible results if they could get to Laodicea and Smyrna and Ephesus. Okay, so that's that's where they want to go, Pergamum. They want to head to these churches, and they fi- we find out from the scriptures the Holy Spirit says, "No, you can't go that way." So what ends up ta- taking place is they begin to take the northern route, and they believe that they're going to end up going into Bithynia and Pontus in that light green, and they say the Spirit of Jesus was so strong to them after they had traveled that direction that they weren't to go north into Bithynia and Pontus. All they could do was just travel straight west. 
There was nowhere else for them to go. They were forbidden from going into these two great big regions where there would have been massive evangelistic payoff, and they have to continue traveling and traveling and traveling till they get all the way to the end, to the westernmost part of Asia, which is in red, to Troas, and then they're going to go across the Aegean Sea into Neapolis, which was the port city of Philippi, 10 miles down the road. Are you seeing all this? And if you're not seeing all this, nod your head and pretend you are anyways, all right? Thank you, thank you. You have a map in the back of your study Bible that you can follow along with this type of thing as well if you ever want it. Now, I, I, I say all this, I, look at the length of the purple line between Antioch and Pisidia, dead center, and Philippi. That is 600 miles. And that's 600 miles as the crow flies not 600 miles of Roman roads. That's from here to Cleveland, Tennessee, folks. That is a missionary journey in and of itself, except they didn't get in their Tesla and drive over there. They didn't get in a helicopter. They didn't get in, even in the biplane to get there. They walked 600 miles in mountainous regions, and they're not allowed to stop anywhere to spread the gospel, and they don't know where they're going. This is the inconvenient voice of the Lord. Now, here's the good news. We'll leave the map up there for one more second. You might say, what about Ephesus and Laodicea and Pergamum? What about all those massive places on the map? Well, don't worry. Those are, those are part of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Not only is Paul going to get to some of them later on on his third missionary journey, but the Apostle Peter gets there, and the Apostle John becomes bishop of that area before his death. And then for those of you who like church history, raises up a man named Polycarp, who then raises up a man named Irenaeus right in that area. So God's got plans for that southwestern church. You say, what about Bithynia and Pontius? What about that area that they wanted to go in? I've got great news for you. Read the introduction to 1 Peter. Peter got there, and Peter shared the gospel there. So God had plans for Southwest Asia, as it's there on the map. God had plans for Bithynia and Pontius. It's just that Paul and his ministry associates weren't part of them at this time. God knew exactly what he was doing by inconveniencing Paul, Silas, Timothy, and eventually Luke. Did you notice in the middle of our passage this morning that it went from they to we? It goes from the third person plural to the first person plural. Because somewhere on this journey, Luke joined the story, which is kind of exciting as well. Luke is the one who writes the Gospel of Luke and is writing this very book, the book of Acts. Paul couldn't have known that this journey that he was on, following the inconvenient voice of the Lord, was going to net the church one of its most important writers. Think about that for just a minute. If Paul had not been forbidden by the voice of the Lord to go southwest, or Paul had not been conv convinced by the voice of the Lord not to go northeast into Bithynia and Pontius, they would have never met Luke and brought him into this ministry circle. We would not have the book we're reading today, nor would we have the well-researched gospel of Luke that explains the ministry of Jesus in great detail. But because he listened to the inconvenient voice of the Lord, he picks up Luke. Could Paul have known that? No. Could Paul have known that John and Peter were going to get to those churches in the southwest? No. Could Paul have known that Peter was going to go to those churches in the northeast? No. He just needed to obey the inconvenient voice of the Lord. Could you imagine welcoming Timothy to the team? Timothy, welcome. We are going to go win people to Jesus. Sounds good, Paul. These are all the churches me and Barnabas founded. There's, there's uh, Smyrna, or I'm sorry, there's there's Antioch and Pisidia, and there's, there's Lystra, and there's Derby. Here's these churches we founded. Aren't these great? Yeah, this is great. I'm glad you and, Par Paul, you and Barnabas had this great ministry together. When are we going to found some churches? We're going to found them, Timothy. We're going. Come on, Silas. We're going to go found some churches. Let's head to Asia. Except they can't go. All right, we're going to take the northern route. Must be that we're supposed to go to Bithynia and Pontius. No. 600 miles in, could you imagine, if you're Silas or Timothy? Paul, where are we going? Don't know. Well, we've come to the coast. Yes, we have. <laughs> and they're still waiting for instruction. And it is at this point that what? Paul has a dream. 
A dream of a man in Macedonia, we know it is Greece. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. We know it is Greece. But a, 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 a Macedonian man saying, hey, come over and help us. And Paul's like, ah, that's why we traveled 600 miles. We're supposed to go to Greece. So Timothy, Paul, Silas, and Luke hop on a boat. And now it says we took a straight course. That's a nautical uh, that's a nautical word, straight course. That means we try to get the fastest route to Philippi, which is kind of funny after they've taken the circuitous journey, hiking 600 miles in rough terrain. It would take them months to get to Troas. They end up in Troas. They take the straight course through Samothrace all the way to Neapolis and then 10 miles up the hill into Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman settlement. In fact, Philippi was settled by veterans of the wars of Octavius Caesar. It was his gift to them. In essence, it was an old city that needed to be refounded. And if you had fought in the wars of succession with Octavius and won, beat Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and all their friends, if you had won those battles, you were gifted some land in Philippi, which means Philippi was a young city, which also means something very detrimental theoretically to the gospel. Jews had not yet got there. Remember we've talked about Paul working his ministry plan? That he has a plan. What's the plan? You could probably recite it to me at this point. He goes into the synagogue. That's the gathering of the Jewish people on Saturdays. And he tells them, hey, listen, all you synagogue goers, the Messiah that you've been waiting for that was foretold in the Old Testament, listen to me, he has come, his name is Jesus. He proved he was the Messiah, not only by his miracles, but he died for the sins of our people, just like it says in Isaiah chapter 53, and he rose again, just like it says he will in Psalms, he is the Messiah. And the Jewish people, some would agree, some would not agree. But when he would get that hearing among the Jewish people of the synagogue, he would also meet the God-fearers. Those were the Gentile prospective converts to Judaism. So he'd meet Gentiles who were interested in the word of the Lord, and then they would introduce him further to Gentiles who might not even know the Old Testament, i.e. Sergius Paulus on the Isle of Cyprus. He, he gets an audience with the proconsul. Paul's plan is clear. This is how we do evangelism. But how do you do your plan if you get to Philippi and there are no synagogues. So not only has he traveled 600 miles with his ministry associates without trying to found a church, he's gone 600 miles with his ministry associates, they get to Philippi, and there's no Jewish people there. I mean, I'm glad I wasn't on this missionary journey. I, I, I don't hear any of, of Timothy, Silas, and Luke going, dude, what are we doing? This is a hot mess. We traveled all the way here. We traveled for months through the mountains to get here. There aren't even Jewish people here, Paul. No one has the expectation of the Messiah in this city. What are we doing here? This is stupid. I'm so glad I wasn't on this team. I would have submarined the whole thing when we got to Philippi going, we don't even know how to minister to these people. So this is what the Bible tells us. They went down to the river because if there were any Jewish people or any people who knew the Old Testament, they would go on the Sabbath down to the river to pray. Now, when I say there was no synagogue in Philippi, that didn't mean that there were zero Jewish people, but what it meant is there weren't even 10 men because you needed 10 men to found a synagogue. So there were very few, if any, Jews in Philippi because it was a newer settlement. They go down to the river, and what we discover is they find some women there who are praying one of whom is called Lydia. She's called a worshiper of God. She's from the city of Thyatira back there in Asia. She's an immigrant to Philippi. She is not Jewish as far as we can tell. She's a worshiper of God, which means that she has read parts of the Old Testament and she is interested in the same God that we have, Yahweh God, the God of the Jewish people. I am that I am, existence himself. She believes in the God and Father of who she's gonna find out is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what she believes. And she's interested in what Paul has to say. And so she listens to the gospel. She wants to get baptized. She then tells her household, hey, you're going to get baptized too, because that's how things worked in the ancient world. See the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? And that's the effect that they had in Philippi. 600 miles over rough terrain, 
There is no synagogue. There, there's, there's, no, there's no great exposition of the scriptures. You don't get to prove that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament in the synagogue. You meet Lydia, who's an immigrant, who's not even Jewish, and she comes to faith. And therefore, her household servants or slaves also get baptized because that's the way it worked in the ancient world. These are the smallest results we have seen for Paul yet. I mean, you, you went over the first missionary journey, right, with, with us. You saw the results. Sometimes the whole region was coming to Jesus. Right now we have one household. Now, I will, uh, we're not going to go into one of the most famous stories of the Philippian jailer. Next week we have other fish to fry during this series. But I do have really good news for you. By the time Paul leaves Philippi, he's converted one more household. One. It happens to be his jailer after he'd been flogged and thrown into prison. So his jailer gets saved. And then the jailer's household. By the time he leaves Philippi, we have at least two households that have come to faith after 600 miles, 1,000 miles from Antioch and Syria. And that's the payoff. Now, now just, just, just before we go any further, before I prove to you that God still knows better than us, let's just review. The inconvenient voice of God had led Paul and his associates on a long and arduous journey that ended with the smallest results in the history of his ministry to date. How would we take this? How would we do as part of Paul's team? And not only that, he does it with three new members of the team. So they must have been looking around going, what an idiot. Now, I don't know that that's how they felt. We can't say that for certain. They might have been just glorying in the fact that Lydia and the Philippian jailer come to know Christ. But I want to prove to you now that he does know better than us. The first proof that God knows better than us has already been uh, stated in this place. Because you and I have the book of Philippians today. For 2,000 years, people have been writing Paul's, reading Paul's letter back to the Philippians. It's been encouraging them. It's been inspiring them. It's been bringing faith to them. The promises of God that are stated in Corinthians are true. The old Christians would have said they are yea and amen. And we quote these things to one another, and we believe that God will move in our circumstance. God has given us Philippians. So we needed Paul to go to Philippi. God needed Paul to go to Philippi because what I have not mentioned to you, which is kind of exciting, is that this is the first time in the scriptures that we see Jesus preached in Europe. Up to this point, Jesus has been preached in Asia, and we assume Jesus has been preached in North Africa, but we have no record up to this point of Jesus having been preached in Europe. God needed someone so obedient to go so far in order to found the Western church. And that's what's taking place in this moment. There's going to be lots of disciples that get to a lot of places. Think about Corinth that eventually gets reached here. Corinth, by the time that Paul writes back to them, have been visited by Paul and Peter and Apollos. There's going to be great fruit that comes from Paul's move into Europe. God knows this because God knows better than us. But the real question is, what did Paul get out of it? What did Silas get out of it? What did Timothy get out of it? What did Luke get out of it? Because that was quite the journey. And I want to take you directly into the scriptures just to prove that God is perfect in his ways. Turn over if you put a finger into Philippians chapter 4. I want to show you what Paul got out of it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul talking to the Philippians years later from his jail cell in Rome. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Did you see what Paul called the Philippian church? His joy and his crown. They become the church that he loves most of all. They are the ones that bring him joy and peace and make him feel loved above all other churches. Now, turn over a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Look at what Paul says of them there. He says of the Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you. 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Think about Lydia saying, hey, where are you all staying? Would you come to our house? Come to my house? I, I, I've got plenty. I can take care of you while you're here. Do you remember that? That's the last part of the passage that we read. From the first day until now, you've been my partners in the gospel. Luke says she prevailed upon us. That means they were like, no, no, we're fine. No, no, we're good. God will supply our needs. And Lydia's like, yes, through me. Come stay with my, at my house, guys. I got gotcha. you. She was a dealer in purple cloth. Purple was expensive, which means she's got some money. She can handle it. So she brings these guys from the first day until now. They become partners in the gospel. The humble Philippian church, full of Gentiles, sons and daughters of Rome, become servants of Christ and co-workers in the gospel. Look at how else the Philippian church benefits Paul. Turn back now to chapter 4. Let's read 15 through 19. He says to the Philippians, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. This is so important. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Catch this. I have received now from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent to me here in Rome. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This humble Philippian church, full of Gentiles, sons and daughters of Rome, become servants of Christ, co-workers in the gospel, and begin to fund his missionary journeys. They hadn't been raised on tithing. They hadn't been raised on offerings. Yet these people are giving to him for the sake of the gospel more than any other church he says, no one else was partnering with me in the gospel at this point. No one else on this second missionary journey had any interest in the gospel moving forward. Nobody else, in essence, would cough up a few quarters to make sure that the gospel could move forward in Macedonia and into other regions. But you did. And, and just in 15 through 19, we see at least four times, he says, you gifted me money for the gospel when I left Macedonia you gifted me twice before I'd even left Thessalonica, and now that I'm in Rome, you funded a trip by Epaphroditus to see to my needs here. Wow. A generous church, still funding Paul on his fourth missionary journey. It's incredible. It's incredible. The fruit that happened in Philippi. We look at it in human terms and say, what, two households, 600 miles? Because we, we are human. We're human. I, I don't want to walk to Cleveland, Tennessee. The mountains around Kentucky and Knoxville would be the end of me. These guys walked through treacherous terrain to found a church with two households of Gentiles, non-Jews, people who hadn't even expected the promise of the Messiah, and they are the ones that fund the ministry for years and years to come. You say, well, did the Philippians get anything out of it? Yeah, they got Jesus. They got the gospel. They got saved, right? They got the most important thing you could ever get, everlasting life in heaven with Christ. They got the whole thing. But just so you know that their gifts didn't go to waste, let me share one more verse with you. Are you still in chapter 4? This is so cool. Remember, Philippi is a Roman colony, right? These are Roman folks who, who were descendants of Rome. Look at verse 22, second to last verse of Philippians. Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Do you see it? Do you see the gold nugget that he just tosses in the end of the letter? Thanks for funding me, guys. Really appreciate you. Love you. You're my joy and my crown. Oh, yeah, we're converting people in the emperor's household. Money well spent. How's the ROI on funding me now? 
these proud Romans get to say the gospel of Jesus Christ that we responded to is now saving people in Caesar's own household. How cool is that? Everybody wins. Everybody wins when brothers and sisters in Christ obey the inconvenient voice of God because he knows better than us. God wins, we win, the Philippians win, Paul and his ministry associates won because of what God did. God, through his voice, inconvenienced them greatly to get them to the place that he knew they ought to go. And this is the pattern that you and I must become comfortable with. That the voice of God will most often, if not every time, seek to inconvenience us. But we should obey it because God's voice is perfect. God knows exactly what he's doing. So when we bow and pray at the end of a church service and God is tugging on your heartstrings and you know that he is calling you to do something that will be inconvenient and hard and tough and call you outside of yourself, call you into a journey of faith and you, you're feeling it and you're acknowledging it, the next thing after acknowledgement is to obey it. Because that voice that sought to inconvenience you is the voice that is moving the gospel of Jesus Christ forward in the world, and he wants to do it through you. That voice right there. The question is, when we hear the voice of the Lord, are we ignoring it, or are we giving God just a minute? I acknowledge the voice, and I will do it when I'm ready. I acknowledge the voice, and I'll do it if all the stars align. If you give me a helicopter to get there, God, I'm on it. If you just make the situation absolutely perfect, I'll obey your voice, and I'll know then that it was you. That is not what I read on these missionary journeys. I read folks who traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled according to the voice of the Lord. And when they get to where they're going, they don't experience the payoff that you might expect. Yet the payoff into the ages is great. Will we recognize that this is how God works in our lives? He inconveniences us for his kingdom and his glory, but also for us. Who's going to be your joy and your crown? Who? Who? When your life's race is nearly run, who's going to be your joy and your crown? The one that you said, you know what, it made no sense and it was hard and it was tough, but thank God that I listened. Because, because that's, that's what brings me joy and that's what lets me know that I have done what I was called to in this life, my crown. Who's going to be your joy and your crown? You can't get to the joy and the crown unless you listen and obey to the inconvenient voice of God. That's how you get there. Your joy and your crown comes when you work hard for the kingdom because God's called you to work hard for the kingdom and you listened and obeyed. You didn't say just a minute, hoping that God would move you on to the next thing or forget that he spoke. You said, yes, God, I will obey because I trust that you know better than me for your glory, for your kingdom. And so that when I reach my end, when my race is nearly run, I can look back on my life and say, what a joy and what an accomplishment in the name of Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, your voice can be incredibly overwhelming. Your voice can call us to question even our sanity at times. You couldn't be saying that. That's just ravings, Lord. I, I don't know why my inner monologue would say that. Lord, your voice is sometimes hard to accept. But Lord, we trust that you are always speaking. 
trust that you're always at work. Oh God, I pray that you would do a work in us. where we would be so ready to listen and obey that the world would be changed for you through us. So today, rather than seek a new word in this place, how many of you have ignored an old word? Maybe it was two weeks ago, maybe it was two months ago, Maybe it was two years ago, but you've ignored an old word from the Lord. You didn't take a step of obedience that you were certain that he called you to. And you say, well, Pastor Matt, that word didn't have to do with evangelism. Fine. Okay. Maybe you need to take that step for reasons unknown to you, but will eventually lead to God's glory. If you have an old word today that you need to obey, would you just acknowledge that to heaven today? But not not say just a minute. Just say, Lord, I need to obey. Would you just acknowledge that to the Lord? then I would ask you who are you going to tell what the Lord has spoken to you who are you going to ask to keep you accountable to his word who are you going to say I need you to help me obey I need to do this God's called me to it who are you going to tell who does the Lord bring across your mind's eye Finally, when are you going to tell them? When, when are you going to tell them? You're going to wait till tomorrow when the journey of life gets faster again? Can you tell them today? When are you going to tell them? Put a time in your mind that will not pass before you've told the Lord and your friend that you're going to obey. Lord Jesus, I pray that the emotive nature of this moment would translate into into the kinetic moment of today where we move to obey. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Would you stand? Whatever you do the rest of the day, eat a vegetable. I don't know if that's on the menu for your Super Bowl party, but eat a vegetable. Fiber, greens, nutrients. You'll be glad you did. Heavenly Father, send us from this place ready to obey, ready to love, and Lord, in a spiritual sense, in search of our joy and our crown. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.